Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a future World Series MVP whose life came full circle, being honored on the very same field as Lou Gehrig in the movie Pride of the Yankees. And you know, if you remember the film Pride of the Yankees, the good part of the film was Lou Gehrig knowing that he was dying, standing at home plate, and saying how lucky it's been for me to be Yankee. And my response, how I didn't use the word lucky, how grateful I am that I was a Yankee and headed to God be the glory. And all that was filmed, and I have it on a little film that later became a film of my life called The Bobby Richards Story. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers, and coaches, writers, and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sand lots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is New York Yankees legend Bobby Richardson. Seven-time All-Star and the only World Series MVP to play for a losing team. This is part two of our conversation. Bobby, thanks for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Well, I'm honored to be with you today and uh, a lot of memories. Glad to share them. Well, we've talked about 1960 and we've talked about 1962, but obviously I need to ask you about 1961. What was it like to be on that team during the time that Mantle and Maris we're going for the home run record. That was really an unusual year. Those guys were back and forth, back and forth, and right towards the end, it was 50s. And to be honest, most of our teammates were pulling from Mantle to be the one to break Babe Ruth's home run record. Sure. Maris had been traded in, and and uh, actually when Maris came on board, uh, it was great for Mantle because there was a boo or two for him every now and then. But when Maris came on board, you didn't hear any more boos from Mantle. Mm-hmm. They were giving Roger a hard time, mm-hmm. of course, during that year. Mm-hmm. Even with the home runs, he was having a very tough time. And he was losing his hair, and the public relations were unbelievable. He said the only piece he had was during the actual game itself. Mm-hmm. They'd all ask the same question. Now you go break Babe Ruth's home run record. Mm-hmm. And and then, of course, as it turned out, uh, because of a shot he took and got an infection, and he was not able, our allegiance immediately went over to Maris, and we wanted him to break it. And uh, he really didn't care that much. He wanted to sit out. Ralph made him play. Even that last game, mm-hmm. Ralph made him play. He didn't want to play the game. So it's unusual. Now, Roger and I have become very close friends. And uh, when he had a special day 50 years later, yeah. he had already gone on to be with the Lord with the battle with cancer. But his wife was asked to pick any five teammates to come up and be a part of the celebration of, uh, of the home runs that year that he hit, breaking the record. Mm-hmm. And Pat Maris picked Betts and I. And it was just a special mm-hmm. time, a special moment for our family, his family. Our kids kind of grew up with Mantle boys and the Maris family. Mm-hmm. They all attended school together down in Fort Lauderdale, a private school, and pick them up in a bus, and they'd all be together in school. Mm-hmm. So we've been a close family all these years. And I'd have to say that probably Roger came by and spent a couple nights with me here at my home, watched my son play American Legion baseball. Mm-hmm. In fact, the the game I took him to, and this is unusual, and you can believe it probably, but uh, Mantle was known everywhere. Everybody recognized Mantle. Roger was not. Mm. He went to a game where 2,000 people in my hometown was at. One guy came up to him at the end of the game and said, boy, you look a lot like Roger Maris. Mm. <laughs> he said, thank you. Mm. <laughs> they didn't, didn't write the sports writer gave me a fit the next day for not letting him know he was there. Mm. You can imagine that. But Roger was a special person, a special friend, and, uh, and their family is still really being close to me. One of the amazing things about 1961, when Roger Maris broke the record with 61 home runs, 
is that the number of times he was intentionally walked when he hit the home run record. <laughs> That's unbelievable, isn't it? And it was? Zero. You know the answer to that. <laughs> yes. Nobody, because of who was batting behind He him. never was intentionally walked. And you think about Barry Bonds years later. Broke the home run record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. home run record. He was never That's walked not. intentionally because there was a fella with number seven <laughs> batting right behind him. That's exactly Isn't right. That's something. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Well, you ended your career rather young. You were 31 when you retired from from the from the from the Yankees. T- tell us about that decision. Well, it was a decision Tony Kubek and I have been uh, teammates for all these years. The minor leagues we played together in Denver for two years, and then with the Yankees all those years. I had really one guy that was with me the whole time, and that was Ralph Houck. He was my manager in Denver. He was my coach in New York, my manager in New York, general manager in New York, and then came back again. So Ralph Hell and Kubek and I were together mm-hmm. my whole career, the minors and the majors. Mm-hmm. And Tony and I decided we'd won. I used the figure that you didn't use earlier, but nine out of the first 10 years, the Yankees won the pennant. Mm-hmm. So we're in the World Series every year but one, and that was in 1959. Now, I know why we didn't win in 59. We didn't have a single 300 hitter on the Yankee ball club that year. It was one of those years when nothing would go right for us. Mm -hmm. The White Sox won a lot of games, well over 100, I think. Mm -hmm. And going into the last game of the season in 59, Casey Stengel came up to me and said, we don't have a single 300 hitter. You're hitting 299. Uh, If you can get a hit first time up, we'll take you out of the lineup. The Yankees will have at least one 300 hitter. Mm -hmm. Well, word got around that I needed a hit, and Billy O'Dell was pitching. You remember I said he was my quail hunting partner mm-hmm. and close friend, and he sent word over. He said, I'm going to be throwing it right in there for you tomorrow. And Brooks Robinson, the third baseman, sent word over, I'll be playing real deep if you want to bunt. And the catcher was Joe Ginsburg, and he said, I'll tell you what's coming. And the first base, first base umpire said, uh, he said, just make it close at first base. I had everything going for me. I had a line drive to right field, and probably my closest friend, Alfie Pearson, made a diving catch in right field, caught the line drive. But I got two hits the next two times up. He took me out. I ended up 301. Mm. And so uh, it was an unusual season in that uh, the, the home run race was unbelievable, and it was, uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time to be a part of that. And what was your question? I've talked so much, I've never forgotten what it was. <laughs> well, just the fact that you retired so early. You were 31 years oh, old. Oh, yes, that's right. And so and so, what happened? Kubek and I both decided we'd won all those years. And uh, we were missing out on the priority in our life, mm-hmm. and that was our family. Yeah. Uh, he got married a little later than I did, and I had a, a, a really a, a, I had uh, four children at that time. And so he and I decided we were both going to retire at 29. And uh, Sports Illustrated heard about it, and they sent their photographer over and took a picture, and we were going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated when they made the announcement. Tony's got that picture right now, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. But uh, what happened after that is that time went by a little bit, and the Yankees signed Bobby Mercer. Ralph Houck had moved up to general manager, and he called up, and he said, now, I know both you guys because we had told him, and he had agreed. He said, I hate to lose you, but that's fine. If you really feel you want to do that, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. And he said, but now I have signed Bobby Mercer, and I want one of it. It doesn't matter which one, Tony, you, or Bobby, to play one more year and break Bobby Mercer in. Mm. 
Well, it was all decided that I would retire and Tony would play one more year. Mm. But Tony got called in a reserve program. And uh, he's going to miss the whole year. And so Ralph called me and said, we've got a gentleman's agreement. One of you would do it. Tony can't. Will you play one more year? And I said, well, I'll be glad to do that. Mm-hmm. And so Tony couldn't play because of the injury. He had gotten an injury in, in, uh, when he was in the service. And Mayo Clinic had told him it might result in a permanent paralysis and that you cannot play any more baseball. Mm-hmm. And so he was out. And so I played that extra year. And the Yankees were very gracious to me. Uh, Ralph Houck met with me, general manager, and he said, how much you want to make? Here's a blank contract. Put anything you want mm. in there. And I said, well, I didn't have too good a year last year. I said, we finished uh, in bad shape. And I said, how about the same thing I made last year? He said, that'll be fine. <laughs> well, he filled it in, and he gave me a little raise, but then he gave me a five-year contract, oh. <laughs> one to play and four to decide what I wanted to do for the next four years without having any. The only thing he asked me to do was to go down the, pre- the first year and to speak to all the minor league clubs. Yeah. And I remember that Jim Bowden uh, was campaigning a little bit, and he said, I would like to speak to those ball clubs. And he said, over my dead body, you will. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I did do that. I went down to all the minor leagues and spoke to them, and the five-year contract was really something. The rest of that story is unbelievable, though, because I, I, I became the baseball coach. Paul Dietzel asked me to be the baseball coach at the University of South Carolina, and I turned him down and said, no, I've got a five-year contract, four to go. I said, I'm, I'm satisfied with what I'm doing. And they did ask me one time to cross-check one player and tell me whether they should be the number one draft choice or not. But other than that, nothing to do. Well, anyway, Paul came back the third time, and I said, you know, I'm ready to do it now. I think I'd enjoy that. And so uh, I said, let me get a release from the Yankees. I've got two years left on the contract. Then I called Lee McPhail, who had taken over as general manager from Ralph. Ralph was back coaching. And uh, I said, Lee, I'm ready. Uh, if you will, just release me from my contract and uh, that you won't have to pay me. And I'm going to be the baseball coach, University of South Carolina. He said, we'll pay you. We'll be glad to pay you. No problem there. But if you want to, you can come back. You can be our broadcaster. You can be our AAA manager. Or you can be a major league coach. And I said, no, the reason I'm getting out is my family and so forth. And he made this statement. He said, when you get settled, just give us a call then coaching and we'll bring the Yankees down and play your ball. Oh my gosh. Three years later, we lost that to Miami by one run. I called Lee McPhail and I said, we're ready for you. He kind of laughed a little bit and hesitated and said, well, we got a little problem. And I thought that was a no. And I said, I understand. He said, no. He said, we're traveling north from spring training with with the New York Mets. And uh, and then I thought, well, that's definitely a no. He said, would it be all right if we bring both the Yankees and the Mets <laughs> down to play your ball club? We can play three against the Yankees, three against the Mets, and then we'll play each other the lights. And he said, will that work out? I said, Yogi's managed the Mets. It couldn't work out better. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. And Yogi finally flew in, and I, I drove the bus out to pick him up. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are you doing driving the bus? And I said, well, I I'm a little more careful than that other guy from Motorpool. I said, I wanted to make sure you were safe. And uh, he said, well, tell me what we're doing. And I told him, he said, y'all can't compete against us. He said, let me do this. I'm pitching batting practice every day. Let me pitch to your ball club. Your pitchers can pitch against the other two clubs. He pitched against both of our clubs. We beat both the Yankees and the Mets. I didn't even dress out. I just stayed in the stands and did the PA system and introduced the players and all. And it just put our team on the map and 
right after that, we finished second in the nation in the College World Series. That's a pretty good way to start that's for. A good story, that's a good story. That's a pretty good way to uh, <laughs> pretty good way to start for a college baseball team beating both the Yankees and the Mets. That's and here's the rest of it too. Now, uh, I had both Wade Boggs and Tino Martinez signed to play for me. Is that right? I saw Wade in New York in the Old Timers game, and I said, you sure you made the right decision not playing for me? He said, let me think for a minute. He said, I'm making 14 minutes. Yeah, he said, I think I made the right decision. My gosh. <laughs> I'm doing well. But I had Whitey Ford son was my switch hitting shortstop. Al Worthington's son was my second baseman, really a good ball player from uh, Birmingham. Scooter sent his son down. I called Yogi. I said, you go send your son down? He said, no, he's going right to the big leagues. And he did. did? Yeah. <laughs> After you retired, well, they quickly had Bobby Richardson Day at Yankee Stadium. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember that on the day before, they had 3,000 people in the stands. And they had 40,000 on that day. And I, it was an unusual day because they allowed me to do some things you ordinarily wouldn't do. They allowed me to write a track and pass it out to all those people there, mm-hmm. telling what my real thrill in life was, to know the Lord is my Savior. Mm-hmm. They allowed George Beverly Shea, who was Billy Graham's longtime song guy, sing How Great Thou Art. Cliff Bowers, who led the national anthem at that time, was Billy Graham's song leader. All of Billy's evangelists were there. Billy, I'd been with him on five different occasions mm. in Crusades, and he was out of the country, but his whole team was up there. Mm. It was a special day. I do remember that Al Cott, Al Cott was pitching, not Al Cott, Jim Cott. Jim Cott was pitching, mm. and he did the same thing Odell did. He said, it's your day, buddy. Everybody will be a medium-speed fastball right down the oh. middle. I went over for 5 that day. Ah. <laughs> Told him, I wish you'd bear down on me now. <laughs> But there were some wonderful gifts. There was an automobile, a lot of wonderful things. And just uh, to think, and you know, at that time, I was the 10th Yankee to have a day at Yankee Stadium. Is that right? And that includes DiMaggio and and, uh, and uh, all the great Lou Gehrig. And that's that, so that's quite a group. Well, it is a group. Uh-huh. It is a group. And you know, if you remember the film, Pride of the Yankees, the good part of the film was Lou Gehrig, knowing that he was dying, standing at home plate. Mm-hmm. And saying how lucky it's been for me yeah, to be Yankee, yeah. and my response: How I didn't use the word lucky. How grateful I am that I was a Yankee and headed to God be the glory. Mm. And all that was filmed, and I have it on a little film that later became a film of my life called the Bobby Richards story. Well, then, and that came full circle, didn't it? You, you, you <laughs> becoming interested in, in the Yankees because of pride of the Yankees, and remembering and the Lou Gehrig speech, and on that same home you're place, standing right? right there in the same place Lou Gehrig was. Yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Tell me about your relationship with Mickey Mantle, because the, the eulogy, obviously, the, that you gave at Mickey Mantle's funeral is quite remarkable and, and, and very well known. But you know, so many good things that Mickey did that people never heard about. I remember that he flew across the country for Fritz Bickel when he was dying with cancer. In this church right here, he did a benefit for a missions outreach And over the years, he very seldom said no. He came to my hometown on numerous occasions, but in particular for the YMCA. We had a great banquet. There was a highlights film. And then we went out to the ballpark, and Mickey was to give a batting exhibition, something that you just can't imagine him doing. Tell me about your relationship with Mickey. Well, uh, here's what happened. It's really interesting. At 17, we had a fellow here in town that owned the Coca-Cola Bottling Company, 
And he had arranged for me to go up to New York and have a three-day trip and work out with a parent, New York Yankees, as a 17-year-old. He had a private plane. He said, I'll fly you up. And I said, Mr. Heath, I said, I've never been on a plane. Is there any other way we can go? And he laughed. He said, we'll just take the train. So we took the train from Sumter to Florence to New York, checked into the Hotel New York at that time, took a cab out to Yankee Stadium. And I was, I remember that uh, he had brought me a suit of clothes for the occasion. And I went out and uh, I remember going in Yankee Stadium and my my locker turned out to be the same locker I had later on life, right by Frank Crescetti. Frank looked over at me and said, what size shoe do you wear? He looked at my high school shoes that I was fixing to put on a uniform they had for me out to work out in. And they were the same size. He said, here, take these. And he gave them to me. And then I was put on the uniform, and I was going out to work out. They told me to feel some ground balls. Corsetti said he hit some balls to me. And then come up and take six or seven swings with the regulars. Then come in and shower and watch the game, playing the St. Louis Browns. And I remember that I started to walk out with my shoes in my hand, and he said, why don't you put your shoes on? He said, I said, in here on this carpet? He said, yeah, everybody everybody does that. So I did. And I walked out on the field, and for Craig, Craig said he hit me some ground balls, and then he motioned for me, come on out and stand around the cage and get in and take some swings. Well, I wasn't about to step in front of Hank Bauer or Yogi Berra, and Mickey Mantle came up from behind, put his arm around me, and said, come on, kid, step in here and take some swings. Mm. And it started a friendship that lasted a lifetime. Mm. I remember that when I came back at 19, I was called up when Gil McDougal was hit by a line drive. I remember that I talked to Johnny Pesky's wife, who sat flying from Denver. He was a coach for us at Denver. She was going to Boston and was on that same New York flight, asking her, how is it like on that first day? And Well, when I had that first day and I walked out and put my uniform, Mantle was out in the dugout a little bit early. And he said, hey, Rich, come over here. He learned my name by then. And he said, hey, Rich, come over here. He said, now. He said, I'm going to make like I'm showing you around Yankee Stadium. And before two minutes are up, I guarantee you there'll be photographers over here Mm -hmm. and you'll be in all the newspapers in New York tomorrow. Well, he started showing me around and click, click, click. And the next day, the New York Times, the Daily News. And I've got copies now of that picture that was uh, as a 19-year-old coming up uh, all over. He was showing me around Yankee Stadium. So we had a special bond. Coming up, New York Yankee legend Bobby Richardson tells more stories about Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and the funeral that was heard around the world. Bob Costas did such a great job. It was so wonderful that they decided they would keep it on national television. They were just going to have a a short clipping. And when Bob Costas did such a wonderful job, they made the decision to keep it on for national television. So it not only was nationally, it was in Dallas, too, but... It went all over the world and all the CNN uh, airports and so forth. You're listening to this podcast because you have an interest in baseball. If you own a business, what do you think people who call you have an interest in? Yeah, your business. So you need a message on hold. Now, tell your callers about your products and services, locations and hours, special offers and more with a message on hold now. We've been providing telephone on hold messages since 1992, and we can do one for you. Get your custom message on hold now at messageonholdnow.com. Messageonholdnow.com. And now back to my conversation with Bobby Richardson, seven-time All-Star second baseman for the New York Yankees. 
I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Bobby, now tell me how you ended up speaking at Mickey Mantle's funeral. Now, we didn't go out together after games. He'd go out with his group, and Kubek and I would go out. We were called the non-drinkers and so forth. But we had a great rapport. So much so, and this is hard to believe now that I'm retired, but I'm, I'm not a pastor. I have two boys that are pastors and two grandsons that are pastors now, but I was not a pastor, just a Christian layman. Mm-hmm. But over the years now, I've had eight of my teammates' funerals. Everyone's different, like uh, Ralph Houck's son, Bobby, asked me to have his funeral. You know, Slaughter's daughter that was born the same day asked me to have her dad's funeral. Uh, Steve Hamilton's wife asked me. We were very close. He'd come down and hunt with me. Uh, Cleet Boyer came to know the Lord in, a, in my house, and I just uh, his daughter was a wonderful Christian, asked me to have his service. Moose Gowan's daughter had me to ask his, have his service. And uh, Roger Barris's wife, I had the eulogy, represented all the Yankees at his, at his funeral. And then Mantle, at Roger Barris's funeral, Mantle sat uh, a cold day, and we were on a motorhome going back to the hotel after the funeral. He sat down by me. He had been a pallbearer, and he'd been drinking a little bit, and I'd had the funeral, and, and he said, hey, I want you to have my funeral. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't answer because I thought, boy, that'll really that'll never happen. <laughs> and then he reminded me two years later when uh, we were together at his golf tournament in Greensboro, North, uh, Greensboro Georgia, he said, don't forget now you to have my funeral. And then every time I saw him, he'd say, don't forget mm-hmm. now you to have my funeral. And then he called me those last days. You remember there was a poignant interview where Bob Costas interviewed him on national television. He'd been through Betty Ford, and he said, I don't drink anymore. And I'd given him the cap. I'd gone out to Dallas, and I was on my back team, and I'd given him all the things they gave me for the All-Star game, and one of them was a hat. He wore that hat all the time. Mm. He wore it in that interview. That That was your cap. He said, I've been through Betty Ford. I don't uh, drink anymore, but I still have a void. And then he did something nobody could do on national television, looking like he did. He said, I'm no hero. I've not been a good husband. I haven't been a good father. It just it took so much so much for him to, to say that. Mm-hmm. And then there was a little bit after that that I was in, 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 in Dallas again, and my phone rang at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it was Vicky, and he said to Betsy, he said, uh, Betsy, I'm at Baylor Medical Center. I'm waiting for a liver transplant, and that." uh uh, I'm really battling with chemo and so forth. And, and he said, I want Bobby to pray for me. And uh, I got on the phone and we had a wonderful prayer together. I remember that I used a verse that I had memorized. It was a verse that tells us that we need to delight ourselves in the Lord, find our joy in Him at all times, never forget His nearness, tell Him in detail our problems, anxieties, and the promises of peace of God, which passes all the standing, shall keep our hearts and minds as we rest in Christ Jesus. And he said, just what I needed. And then Betsy went out and spent two days with Merlin, his wife, and then Mickey and I were together. And I started to leave. He said, don't forget now. You don't have my funeral. Mm-hmm. Well, the call came some weeks later, and he said, I want you and Betsy to come out and to be here with me at Baylor Medical Center on these last days. And we were uh, took Betsy and took her off, dropped her off at the home we're staying in. Whitey and several of the teammates were leaving when I got to him that day, and he had a smile on his face, and he said, I can't wait to tell you this. I want you to know I'm a Christian. I accepted Christ as my Savior. I went over it with him just to make sure that he understood. And I found out he'd been listening to a audio of Pete Maravich's testimony. Mm-hmm. Probably the most humble person I've ever met, and a wonderful testimony. And that's what made the, the final difference in his life. And we had a good time together. Then I had to call Bob Costas and get him, and 
and uh, find a church and and uh, make all the arrangements. And uh, it couldn't have worked out better. I have two friends that are pastors in Dallas, one at First Baptist and one at the, the largest church. Uh, Jack Graham the pastor of the largest church out there. Both of them on vacation had their secretaries that said, no way can we intercept. And they both wanted to fire their secretaries when they found out that the, the, the funeral could have been in their church. Mm-hmm. But went to Coach Landry's church, Lover's Lane mm-hmm. Methodist Church, mm-hmm. and, and then uh, I was able to have the have the funeral there. Well, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that service because you and Bob Costas spoke, and both of those speeches were remarkable. Well, let me tell you what the truth is. Bob Costas did such a great job; it was so wonderful that they decided they would keep it on national television. Mm. They were just going to have a, a short clipping, and when Bob Costas did such a wonderful job, mm-hmm. they made the decision to keep it on for national television. Mm-hmm. So it not only was nationally, it was in Dallas too, but it went all over the world and all the CNN um, airports and so forth mm-hmm. like that. I was honored to be asked to speak by the Mantle family today. I am not standing here as a broadcaster. Mel Allen is the eternal voice of the Yankees, and that would be his place. And there are others here with a longer and deeper association with Mickey than mine. But I guess I'm here not so much to speak for myself as to simply represent the millions of baseball-loving kids who grew up in the 50s and 60s and for whom Mickey Mantle was baseball. And more than that, he was a presence in our lives, a fragile hero to whom we had an emotional attachment so strong and lasting that it defied logic. Mickey often said he didn't understand it, this enduring connection and affection. The men now in their 40s and 50s, otherwise perfectly sensible, who went dry in the mouth and stammered like schoolboys in the presence of Mickey Mantle. I couldn't tell you how many letters I've gotten after that. Mm-hmm. So many, so many friends that were just uh, uh, Mantle fans. Uh, he had more fans. I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine, too. I remember one time, I, I didn't, shouldn't even say this, but you know you shoot or repeat this on, on the air, but uh, he would get, I know how much mail I get. I'm 50-some-odd years away from baseball now, and I went out yesterday, and there were 10, 10 letters, mm-hmm. each one different. One of them was the little boy whose grandfather was the usher, but they're from all over the states, all over the country, some from Japan and so forth. And I've been averaging anywhere from eight to ten a day for 50-some-odd years. That's remarkable. Now, 50 years later, still getting that kind of mail. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can imagine what his was like is what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. He couldn't answer it all. Mm-hmm. Well, one, one other thing, and then I'll let you go. This has been so remarkable for me. Before we started recording, I mentioned about Bob Shepard. And I had the pleasure of sharing the microphone with Bob Shepard during a Yankees-Cardinals spring training game. And when I announced him, it was as though Elvis had walked in the stadium. And this is a spring training stadium. You know, there are only like seven or 8,000 people. But people started looking for him and straining their necks, and I got to introduce him. And the very first words out of his mouth, and I have a recording of this, were, Thank you, John Frost. Ladies and gentlemen... I now present to you, who Reggie Jackson said is the voice of God, legendary public address announcer for the New York Yankees, Bob Shepard. Thank you, John Frost, and welcome to Roger Dean Stadium. 
Here are the lineups for the Yankees at shortstop. Number 12, Miguel Cairo. Number 12. I've had former major league players tell me that one of the pivotal moments in their career was coming to bat at Yankee Stadium and hearing their name introduced by Bob Shepard. <laughs> well, you know that they knew that he was uh, going to die, and so they got him to to come up with uh, an introduction for Derek Jeter. Even after his death, they used that introduced Derek Jeter. Did you know that? Thank you, Stadium. Derek Jeter said that was the only voice that oh, well. would announce him for the rest of his career. Uh, well. <laughs> He was a good enough player. He could have it that way, too. Exactly. What a great guy. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Oh, listen, I enjoyed it, and uh, I look forward to seeing you again sometime. We'll have some fellowship together. Listen each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark. Mm -hmm.